from Integral Life. Welcome to Everyone is Right. Look at all these species. Look at the, particularly the birds. All this magnificent display of peacock's feathers and, and the crest on this and that and so forth. And take a look at them dancing out there before the female. He says, my conclusion is that, and he called it sexual selection. Right. My conclusion is that what's happening, sure, there's some of this other brutal stuff, but what's happening by and large is it's the female that selects the not only the most desirable, but the least repulsive. <laughs> <laughs> that was author David Lloyd who talks to Ken Wilber about the life and often distorted legacy of Charles Darwin, as well as Darwin's belief in love as a critical driver of the evolution of species. Survival of the fittest is taken by many as the end-all, be-all of Darwinian evolution, but all evolution comes down to the solitary drive to propagate one's genes at any cost, giving rise to all sorts of selfish gene interpretations of life, evolution, and society. As Darwin himself explains, pure survival is but the lowest of evolutionary drivers and are eclipsed by a number of other drivers as we move up the evolutionary chain. In Darwin's mind, evolution was guided by an entire spectrum of critical drivers that range from sexual instincts on in the lowest end to the golden rule on the highest, with parental instincts, social instincts, emotion and reason, cultural habits, etc., filling out the rest of the picture which leads to a much more comprehensive understanding of our own evolution while cutting through the confusion of books like The Selfish Gene or Darwin's Dangerous Idea. So check out this first segment from Ken and David's fascinating discussion of love and the evolution of the human species. And consider becoming a supporting member of IntegralLife.com in order to hear the rest of this two-hour conversation. Hello. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, yes. How are you? Excellent, excellent. It's good to hear your voice. I'm here. I'm uh, delighted and looking forward to this conversation, which is part of a trilogy that you have been working on, actually a whole series of books you've been working on, but looking really closely at what Darwin actually said about evolution. And this was looked at in Darwin's Second Revolution and Darwin's Lost Theory. And the present book we're discussing is Darwin in Love, the rest of the story. And the essentials about this is that the way Darwin is particularly interpreted today is the Darwin of the survival of the fittest and the selfish gene and nothing but, you know, it's, it's a jungle out there, and it's, it's a vicious world. It's nasty, brutish, and short, uh, and that's the way nature is built, and therefore that's the way humans are built as, as well. And this has been used as a justification for all sorts of, of the most vile and wretched human behavior imaginable. And yet if we look at Darwin and, and actually look at him more carefully, a rather surprisingly different story actually emerges. So you say, for example, that in The Descent of Man, 
which is where Darwin focused specifically on the evolution of the human species, you point out that I found not only did Darwin write 95 times of love in contrast to only twice for survival of the fittest. And he wrote only 12 times about selfishness, which he called, quote, a base principle accounting for the low morality of savages. But there, now undeniable, is the fact he wrote 92 times about moral sensitivity. That's an addition of 95 times about love. And he wrote about moral sensitivity as the force most surely and powerfully advancing human evolution. So we have a, a considerably different story emerging here from your work, don't we? Well, my goodness, yes. I, uh, you, you have typically have done a brilliant job of summarizing all five books I've been <laughs> So um, let's publish – no, I was going to say let's publish yours and mine out and try for the best, but uh, <laughs> let me respond with that placement for this particular book, Darwin in Love. Right. Where it comes is that there have been two already published that you yeah. mentioned, Darwin's Lost Theory and uh, Darwin's Second Revolution, and despite the fact there have been hailed to the skies by noted evolutionists like yourself all over the world, they are they run up against a solid wall of resistance due to the, uh, the the stranglehold of what you characterize as as I characterize as the selfish genes survival of the fittest mindset which right. is for innumerable disasters now the <laughs> the Darwin in love is my strategic answer to try to by focusing just strictly on the love thrust that he supports. Right. Maybe I feel that this is innocent enough appearing thing to get past the gatekeepers because the others have run into this resistance. But this book, you know, I tell myself, how can they resist it? Here is Darwin's own love story, and then it goes on into these incredible stories that he collected of the love, the sex life and the love life of this broad range of animals and it closes with there's this chapter which to me is a key chapter it's the, followed by the other one it's a uh, the upward thrust of sex and love and evolution followed by the uh, another chapter that spells it out further right. and <laughs> this book now Worldwide available on all the online booksellers. Worldwide, uh, we putting it out there for an introductory price of less than five dollars in ebook form. Right. The first of what I'm transforming into a five ebook series called the Darwin New Worldview uh, ebook series. Right. Go on a little bit more about this thick wall of resistance. Um, how is that showing up? How, how is that making itself known? Well, I think, to me personally, the most dramatic instance of it, which I will put in some book at some point, is that um, my original Darwin work, which has been hailed, you know, in, in uh, insider group, hailed and so on, it was originally submitted 
with, I had I had at one time five agents working on this. We at one time we it was under discussion for a two hundred thousand dollar advance from Harper. It it, it went through a Random House uh, offshoot Harmony, Harper, MIT Press, the Tarcher book series. Right. In every case, there was an editor that was devoted to the book, saw its potential and so on, right. overruled in editorial committee or overruled by the management, even in the face of where the sales managers were telling him, we want to publish this book. God. So infuriated me, I decided, by gosh, even though, you know, I, I have a long string of books uh, traditionally published and, you know, the leading publishers and so right. on. At that point, I was going to form my own publishing company and grind them out, and that's what I'm up to. Okay. Well, we certainly recommend any of them, and we'll talk a little bit more about where people can, can get some of these. Let's just jump into it and go into several of these areas as you bring them up in the book. And you start with Darwin's own upbringing. And you point out, for example, that Macintosh was to become one of the most important figures in the life of both the young Darwin and the old Darwin. This was Sir James Macintosh. He was one of the leading theorists on the nature of morality in his time. Macintosh became the pivotal early inspiration for Darwin's long-ignored theory of the primary drive of love in evolution. Out of those early days at Meyer, and Meyer Hall was the home of Charles's mother, Susanna Wedgwood, and Macintosh was the brother of Josiah Wedgwood's wife, if I got all of those relations uh, worked out. And the later creative ferment compounded of their memory was out of that was to emerge Darwin's theory of what love was and is both in its most basic and intimate and widest possible sense. It was in the end to become a theory of love as the vital prime driver in the crucial moral evolution of our species, which in his version, was like a skyrocket into the dark sky of history. And so the role of love and moral sensitivity turns out to have quite a central place in, in Darwin's overall theory, doesn't it? Oh, yes. It, it was, it, this is what is so haunting, is that here was this man who, out of his background, uh, you know, he was he was a top scholar in, in Cambridge, in studying to be a minister originally, right. and he had high grades in all the divinity studies and so on. Then he shifts to science, and it was out of the earlier background and the fact of his, he came from two generations, two traditions of Unitarians. Yeah. <laughs> so much of what he was getting at that was so seemed so revolutionary was already being spread in his time by the Unitarians. That, uh-huh. <laughs> They were saying, look, forget God if you want to, but let's get together and, and work together for the good of the world. Right. Focus on moral sensitivity. Right. And so Darwin would actually, I mean, he referred to love, and as you mentioned in, in, the, in the Descent of Man, he refers to it 95 times. 
and then you also point out that I think we'll get to that in the standard and 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 for the last hundred years or more, all the standard additions of the descent of man in the index mention love once. Love, yes, once. That's, that's outrageous. Yes, and, and this is in the, all the editions still. Yeah. And, and and what the reference is to is one little tame thing about how the the, the, the grasshopper, by scratching on his uh, little wings and so on, makes a sound that relates to love. <laughs> <laughs> And he thinks, as we'll see, that, that um, you know, that beauty is present here, too, and, and, and that the female actually, you know, registers beauty. I mean, and, and that, that's part of her selection process. Uh, one of the reasons for the resistance, I'm convinced, uh, the, uh, this was, in, in a profound sense, also a uh, casualty of the macho mindset. Yeah. The macho version is, you know, uh, that the conquering male goes out there and, and through brute force rapes the female and so right. on. And, and this is the basic model to do, shove on the genes into the future and so on. Right. Comes along and says, hey, he's saying in effect, hey, fellas, look at, look at all these species, look at the, particularly the birds, all this magnificent display of peacock's feathers and, and the crest, the, the crest on this and that and so forth. And take a look at them dancing out there before the female. He says, my conclusion is that, and he called it sexual selection. Right. My conclusion is that what's happening, sure, there's some of this other brutal stuff, but what's happening by and large is it's the female that selects the not only the most desirable, but the least repulsive. <laughs> <laughs> So it was male competition for desirability and female choice that was actually driving evolution. Yeah, very definitely. Oh, it's uh, it's uh, it's an astounding. Uh, it's it, 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 frankly, it's the most astounding story I've ever encountered in uh, in science. There, there, you know, there are more astounding stories if you go back farther. But uh, well, the sheer distortion. Uh, of him is what's so amazing, and and I think that index example, it's a it's a small telltale sign, but it's very very indicative. I mean, and you say this is go, this is going back almost to the beginning. I mean, there were, in essential you know worldview forces out there, if you will, that were bound on misinterpreting him almost from the start. Yeah, because look at the system. It grabbed hold of the survival of the fittest thing, and and you know, and the scholars said, oh well, there was this phase called social Darwinism, but it came and went back in the early part of the century. Well, the truth is, we've got social Darwinism writ large now running the world because yeah. it happened after Darwin first came out with the descent of man, in which he tells us, he wrote prefaces to edition after edition. What he tells us in all of these addition, uh, these prefaces is, look, he's saying in effect, look, people, I'm about the my whole concept of natural selection. This is very important, but it's not the whole story by a long shot. And in, I've got a quote where he even says, I've done this even in the introduction to such and such, but it is of no avail. The misrepresentation 
continues of no avail. Right, and he, in, in essence, is apologizing for uh, almost having even introduced the notion because it's being so distorted. Yeah. See, what, what gets me in the end is this. I look at this out of a admittedly in-and-out Christian background and, uh, and also, you know, fascinated by the Buddhist and the Hindu and the Baha'i and Sufi versions of Islam, not the rest of it. Right. Here is Darwin, and what, what he is doing, in, in essence, is here is the whole realm of uh, spirituality and of philosophy and so on, and this massive argument going on about what, adult, that, you know, one says this and the other says, oh, you're full of bull, the truth is this and that. They're going back and forth. Along comes science, and the great appeal of science was, we're going to substantiate, we're going to ground some of this stuff for you people and move the whole process ahead. Well, here is Darwin, who in essence, his great contribution is grounding in science, grounding what was already obvious with, with Jesus, was obvious with Gautama, was out obvious with the other great avatars right. and that were excluded by science. But he was providing the grounding of that whole school, and, and, and they ignore him, naturally, because they, the idea of love and a moral sensitivity wasn't very good for business. <laughs> <laughs> and yet he seems in some cases to be sort of most proud of, of being able to ground and account for, uh, for example, the, the golden rule. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. It's, what's so haunting is he starts out... Um, the whole theory that he develops eventually in The Descent of Man, he encapsulates in a brilliant series of insights when he's 28 years old, just back from the voyage of the, I always say bagel, but I bagel. <laughs> and he wrote these private notebooks that weren't published for over 100 years, yeah. which he tells, he, he lays it out like this, the private notebooks, are loaded with all these secret thoughts about uh, about sex. Um, uh, some of them pretty startling, and and certainly nothing that would have ever seen publication attached to Darwin's name in in his lifetime or for many years afterward. Yeah, here he is, this young guy. He's back from the he's back from five years away from the kind of women that he naturally would mate with. And he's he's not married yet, and he's obviously bursting with sex, <laughs> find sexual expression, and all of a sudden, Bing! Out of this these notebooks emerges three notes that, in a sense, are saying this: Look, where it all begins is with sex. It begins with what he called sexual evolution. He says leads to parental. Sexual instinct, he called it, leads over, and we know now, millions of years, to the emergence of what he called parental instinct. Right. On, in, the, in the reptilian age, what you see these dinosaurs on their nests of eggs and so on, which leads over another millions of more years. Yeah. The social instinct. Right. Hold powerfully in the, um, at the mammalian stage. And then this is capped off by the uh, emergence of emotion and reason, 
which our species particularly exemplifies. Right. The fascinating thing is, he says that you start with sex at one end and you wind up with the golden rule at the other. Right. Drive leads the moral drive, which he said this is the most important of the of the higher agencies that are drive, driving us ahead. Right. Let me add one more thing. He not only did that grounding stuff for everybody that had an open eye and an open mind, right. grounding that in evolution and biological evolution, he goes on into cultural evolution. This is where he lost them because he he then has a, another parallel summary where he says, look, in a sense he's saying, look, it begins with caring. Essentially there is this caring as a basic thrust, which leads to reflection, reflection about what is what is it all about, where are we going and so right. on. Leads to the development of language where you have this fascinating development where people can communicate and say, well, this works and this doesn't work and so forth. Right. You have it. Pointing out that what drives us ahead toward the golden rule, toward the, you know, golden age or however you want to put it, is habit. Is, is, this is where moral codes come into, into the commandments that are come into play. Right. Generation after generation after generation through education, through religion, etc., you're hammering across the same set of, of of rules, hoping that it's going to pay off. And this, out of this comes the whole thing, law, norms, the whole thing that right. makes life better. Right. And at that point, it's um, natural selection is having such a, a minimal role to play at that point that in 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 the descent of man it's mentioned as you point out survival of it two times and love is mentioned 95 times and moral sensitivity is mentioned 92 times and so that's the approximate importance of what's going on i mean it's it's sort of right there in the index that they'd actually report it honestly in the index yeah no no see actually he writes twice of survival of the fittest to say let's not use this <laughs> actually writes um, I've got it somewhere but um, don't have it right handy he wrote many many times about nat- natural selection per se and um, and it's, it's quite a healthy number and so I figured ah they're going to you know the opposition is going to spot this and say right. hey look you talk about twice for for survival of the fittest, but look at if you counted up, if you counted up natural selection, what comes across? Well, what comes across? And I did a careful word count of the whole thing in an analysis, using hermeneutics, yeah. <laughs> as we would say. What I found is the pattern of what he's saying about natural selection. What he's saying, in effect, is, look, this is the engine that gets us going, folks natural selection, working with variation. But as you move on, particularly into our species, the emergence of our species, you get the natural selection principle falling off. And part of what he's writing about is how it doesn't apply to to human 
is a human drive, the human destination. Right. And what, you know, this is such a, a succession of obvious things once you get into it in, in biology. One of the two great founders of the neo-Darwinian synthesis was Dobzhansky. Uh, yeah. And um, Dobzhansky writes quite clearly, he says, in effect, look at the, what, the emergence of the human species, biological evolution stops. Yeah. What thereafter happens is cultural evolution. Right. And, and it's just there. It's just there. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if you just look at the notion of, of natural selection, just saying natural selection in itself, uh, it really is pretty meaningless because you have to say natural selection for what? I mean, what's being selected for here? Is it selection of the simply physically most aggressive? Is it selection of the most beautiful? Is it selection of the most moral? Is it selection of the better, the most good, the higher, the most truthful, or is it selection of the most brutal, the ugliest, the meanest, the cruelest? You have to specify. And it, it, it's clear in Darwin's mind as, as evolution continues to unfold that the survival of the fittest sort of selection kind of stuff, it just, it, you know, it's still there in a certain sense, but it's, it's less and less and less a part of the overall mixture which is getting more and more and more towards moral sensitivity and things like the golden rule and so on. And if anything's being selected, those are what's being selected. See, another thing that uh, amazes me and fascinates me about Darwin is that actually in his time, the man who had the widest understanding of what was going on in sort of a broad scale was Herbert Spencer, who cut right. the Bible of the fittest, and he is hailed as the father or one of the fathers of system science, which is which is true. He he gets into the psychology, sociology, et cetera, even the ethics and so on, and and, and winds up distorting the whole mess. <laughs> the um Darwin would actually a lot of biologists refer to the to the mating season. Darwin just straightforwardly call it the season of love. Yeah, yeah. You say Darwin notably didn't call it the mating season or the annual period for the fulfillment of instinctual reproductive functions or quaint copulation for flora and fauna. He called it the season of love. Uh, for him, it was profoundly scientific, though. Love is the word for a vital force in the evolution of our species, as well as for most other species. As he could find no better word for it, why not use it? So season of love appears often in the descent of man. Yeah, that's what I bring out in Darwin in love. It's right. all over the place with him. But what happened just recently, uh, a wonderful woman who is, uh, reads my book, Bing, 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 Bing. She's one of these rare people who is a fast reader and gives you a little response. You know, it keeps you going. And she said, she said in a fan, she, her, her background is biology. Right. And very delicately, what she was saying was that I put all this emphasis on Darwin's use of love, but that was very anthropomorphic. And I saw in an instant, in this one little anecdote, what happened to him with biologists over all those years? If you used a word like love, it just wasn't kosher. Right. 
<laughs> so there's examples of certain types of uh, specifics. Uh, and this is a few paragraphs, but it's worth giving as an example. Um, in many species, and we're quoting Darwin here, the males, whilst young, resemble the females in color. But when adult become much more brilliant and retain their colors throughout life, in other species, the males become brighter than the females and otherwise more highly ornamented, only during the season of love. The males sedulously court the females, and in one case, as we have seen, take pains in displaying their beauty before them. Can it be believed that they would thus act to no purpose during their courtship? This would be the case, Darwin notes, quote, unless the females exert some choice and select those males which please or excite them most. If the female exerts such choice, all the above facts on ornamentation of the males become at once intelligible by the aid of sexual selection. You comment. Here he brings into the discourse a distinction fundamental to his original full theory of evolution. The difference between the operation of sexual selection, driven by love, and the operation of natural selection, driven by all that's been collapsed into the handy mantra, survival of the fittest. In other words, if we switch our minds from the fixation for the 20th century on the blood and guts track of natural selection to the long controversial but very appealing idea of sexual selection, it becomes the female that makes the world go round. And that's clearly what Darwin attempts to show, and not only in our species, but also leading back really quite earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah. Distinction fundamental to his original full theory of evolution. The difference between the operation of sexual selection, driven by love, and the operation of natural selection, driven by all that's been collapsed into the handy mantra, survival of the fittest. In other words, if we switch our minds from the fixation for the 20th century on the blood and guts track of natural selection to the long controversial but very appealing idea of sexual selection, it becomes the female that makes the world go round. And that's clearly what Darwin attempts to show, and not only in our species, but also leading back really quite earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah. We hope you enjoyed this excerpt from David Loy and Ken Wilber's conversation, titled For the Love of Darwin, Beyond the Selfish Gene. Be sure to become a supporting member of Integral Life to listen to the rest of this fascinating two-hour discussion and to gain immediate access to our entire library of practices, perspectives, and presentations, all designed to help you wake up, grow up, clean up, and show up.